Well, good morning, everyone. How you doing? For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim Rinquist. I'm the executive pastor here at Deer Creek Church. And uh, I actually don't often get the chance to get up here and share with you all because a lot of my work happens behind the scenes. And we have so many great communicators who want to plant churches and be lead pastors. And so, um, but they let me up here today. And so um, I'm excited to share with you all two things I want to mention before we dive in that we have uh, going on. The first one is starting point. If you are here and you are new and you're looking how to figure, try to figure out how to get started, um, starting point is the place to do that. We tried to make the name as clear and simple as possible. Um, this is a place for you to learn about Deer Creek Church, learn what it looks like to reach up in worship with us, to reach into community with us, to be in a small group, and to reach out in service. So that's a great place to go if you're looking to get started. It starts next week. Uh, Dwayne lied last week in his sermon about lying, um, about it being this week. He said it was this week. It is actually next week, February 3rd, uh, during this service uh, downstairs. So uh, one thing I want to mention also, we have some middle schoolers who are uh, finishing up a retreat right now. We have 25 middle schoolers, 26 middle schoolers, I think, who are off on a retreat. And uh, if you remember anything about what it was like to be a middle schooler, you know, that's kind of an awkward, weird time of life. And uh, we're just praying that God would work through this retreat as they get away from all of the distractions around them and as they connect with each other and connect with God. So um, I would love to pray for those middle schoolers and that retreat as we pray for our time together. So would you do that with me? Uh, Father, we thank you um, for these kids who have committed to go up uh, into the mountains, away from all of the things um, that, that create noise in their lives and retreat so that they can connect with you. Pray that you would work in their hearts and minds. I pray that they would grow closer to you that they would become young men and young women of faith who would walk with you all the days of their lives. I pray for us now as we hear from your word, would you remove distractions from us? Help me to teach your word faithfully. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a question for you as we get started, why are you here? Not, not why are you in this room, why are you here on this earth? What is your purpose? Another way of saying that is, what are you supposed to do with your life? These are huge, important questions that if you're like me, you don't really stop to ask. You don't really stop, take the time, you know, move from thing to thing in life, doing the next thing. You don't stop and ask these big, huge, important questions. Sometimes they're kind of hard to answer, uh, but they're important. And if we if we don't ask these questions or we don't answer them correctly, it can cause all kinds of issues in our lives. I remember the first time I wrestled deeply with this question, kind of why am I here? What is my purpose? I was a, a freshman in college and, uh, and everything was great. Everything should have been great. Um, I was starting this brand new adventure um, in, of, of college. I had great friends. I was in great shape. You know, I had done high school sports and so I was in the best shape of my life. I also had a friend, a friend with a fake ID, which is just like amazing. <laughs> when you're a freshman, in, uh, I don't suggest that. I'm just telling the truth here. I had, I had it all. I had it all. And uh, the problem with that is I was totally dissatisfied. I had no idea who I was. 
And I remember sitting on my futon in my college dorm because every freshman in college had a futon. And I just kept thinking, who am I and what am I supposed to do with my life? In high school, I was really into sports and I had like that uh, unfortunate situation of being like really good in high school, but not nearly good enough to do something in college. So you like pour all of this energy and effort into high school sports and then they're just done. And I remember thinking the thing that gave my life purpose, the way I spent my time, what people knew me for was just over. And I had no idea who I was and what I was supposed to do with my life. It was this very clear moment of a crisis of purpose for me. And I was not a follower of Jesus at the time, so I didn't really have an answer. I just kind of wandered from thing to thing for a while until I got at least some clarity around this thing of purpose. Turns out I'm not actually the only one asking this question. I'm sure many of you have asked this question as well. Why am I here? A couple months ago, I read an article that um, highlighted a recent statistic from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And it it said this, life expectancy dropped in the United States for the third straight year down to 78.6 years as of 2017. So three years in a row, 2015, 2016, 2017, life expectancy dropped in the United States. And they said a drop like this has not been seen since World War I. What exactly drove this decline? Well, apparently two things, overdoses and suicides. The author of this article and, and several others writing around this trend, they asked this question, are we as a country experiencing a crisis of meaning, a crisis of purpose? They argue that the recent rise in uh, drug overdoses and suicides cannot be explained by economics. The greatest increases in some of these areas were found among women, the privately insured, those with higher incomes, and older white males. Not generally thought of as your down and out categories. A crisis of meaning or a crisis of purpose. Now, I, I don't know if they're right. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not... Uh, qualified to speak to whether that's 100% accurate or not, but it's an interesting question. A crisis of purpose. Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? How would you answer that question this morning? Why are you here? What is your purpose? Today, I want to help try and answer this question from the Bible, which is kind of a good thing to do in a church. Um, and uh, we're going to look at the, ch- uh, the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, and we'll spend the majority of our time just in verse 10. But uh, you can follow along with me as I read the passage on the screen. Uh, follow along in your own Bible. Or if you don't have a Bible, we always want to make sure that people have Bibles. That's kind of what, what we do here. It's kind of the business we're in. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You can grab one of those from the welcome table um, as our gift to you. We'll look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Much of the first nine verses are probably pretty familiar for anybody who has been around a church for uh, any length of time. This is actually what we just rehearsed together, um, that we are separated from God because of our sin. We're, we're dead, spiritually speaking, living lives in opposition to God and his ways. Then it says, but God. God loved us and made us alive, spiritually speaking. And he saved us, it says. He raised us up, all different language to kind of talk about the same thing. And he showed us his grace. Um, not because we were smart or awesome. Uh, no, it was a gift, not anything we earned or deserved. And, and for many of us, these are familiar, familiar truths. I know many of you and, and your specific stories, how when you heard this message, you understood this reality, everything, everything changed. And that is rightly what we often emphasize here when we gather together. Just a, a question for you though, then what? What comes after that? after verses one through nine have happened. Why are we here? What are we supposed to do with our lives after that? Today we'll be looking at Ephesians 2, uh, chapter one, verse 10. And I wanna help clarify, I hope three things. Our design, our purpose, and our confidence. First, our design. Ephesians two ten starts with this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Now, the, the Greek word here for workmanship is actually the word poema, which uh, is where we get our word poem. And what he's saying, are, um, generally this meant any work of art, like a statue or a song or architecture, a poem, a painting that is artfully created. Um, he's saying... Anyone who experiences the new life that God gives us by grace, we are God's poema created in Christ Jesus. One of, uh, one of our bucket list items for my wife and I is to go to Italy uh, without our children. Uh, we have three small little girls and um, if you offered me a free international trip with my children, I would rather just stay home probably because that sounds um, pretty terrible. I love them. I love them. I love being a dad. Um, but I did uh, graduate studies at Denver Seminary 
And one of my favorite topics was church history. I love to learn how this Jesus movement, as messy as it has been, has developed over the last 2,000 years. And I just love to study that, that part of, uh, of my schooling. My wife, on the other hand, was an art education major. And part of what she studied was art history. So where these two things come together in such a beautiful way is the city of Rome. And uh, we, we'd love to, to go there someday. One of the things I hope to see there is the Sistine Chapel. I've, I've, I haven't been there. I know some of you have, but I've heard, uh, I've heard it's a pain in the neck. Um, I'm a dad, so I get to make dad jokes. Uh, it was painted by Michelangelo, uh, the Renaissance artist, not the Ninja Turtle, and is, uh, is considered one of the greatest pieces of artwork ever. Um, according to, to Ranker, a crowdfunding or crowd ranking website, this is, this is number one for what that's worth. Uh, six million people visit this fairly small chapel every single year. And they come to see this amazing artwork created by maybe the greatest artist in history, uh, Michelangelo, who painted this over nine years, kind of in two stages throughout his life. Um, you can click through some of the, the pictures of the inside. I'm not going to show close-ups because they're mostly nudes. Um, Dwayne would show the close-ups for you. but um, Amazing skill and so much time, years of his life went into creating these, this amazing workmanship. But what I, I find kind of odd about this experience is people travel from around the world to go to the Sistine Chapel they, they crowd around and they, they crane their necks at the ceiling. But the true masterpiece there is not actually on the walls. It's not even on the ceiling. It's not even that, that amazing altar wall, last judgment scene. When someone who has been made alive by Jesus steps into that room, they are the greatest piece. They are the greatest artwork, the greatest masterpiece in that building. That's what we're being told here at the beginning of verse 10. You and I are God's workmanship, his poem, his artwork. And Michelangelo, as great as he was, had nothing on Jesus. The greatest paintings, the most stunning statues, the most beautiful of sonnets pale in comparison to God's crowning work of artistry. Human beings made in God's image and being remade by Jesus. We are designed by God. The Bible says we're the first fruits of God's new creation. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And this has major implications, I think, that we struggle to believe. I know I struggle to believe. I'll just speak for myself. God made you specifically, and he calls you his masterpiece imperfect as we may be, for those of us who follow Jesus, here's the truth as God sees it. You are not a mistake. In Christ Jesus, you are a masterpiece. Now, to be fair, there are things that are broken in us. Not everything is right now how God intended it to be. Sin affects us on every single level, spiritually, emotionally, sexually, relationally, and even physically. 
But for those who follow Jesus, God is in a process of remaking us. And one day he'll finish that work, either when he returns or, or we go to be with him. Not long ago, the Sistine Chapel was actually restored. Um, hundreds of years of candle wax, dirt, and grime had covered the frescoes, and, and restorers over a 14-year process began to clean the layers off and expose the beauty that was hidden beneath. People were amazed at what was discovered. I think this is a beautiful picture of what Jesus is actually doing in our lives. As we walk with Jesus, he begins the process of remaking and restoring us, of wiping off the layers of sin and dirt and grime that have built up. And he actually, I think, can use the things that are broken about us even when we're in the midst of them. I don't necessarily share this uh, very often, but as a child, I was diagnosed with ADHD. Um, I don't remember many of the specifics. I was pretty young, but I, um, I'm pretty sure I drove my parents and my teachers really crazy. My dad is bald, and I'm pretty sure that was me, you know, kind of pulling out his hair. I was full of energy. I struggled to sit still and to listen, and I, I was just a handful except when I was interested in a topic. And then I could lock into that and, and do that for hours on end. It's called hyper-focus. I, I was a smart kid, but I really didn't do very well in school. Um, and I remember thinking, something's wrong with me. I'm lacking in some way. God obviously made a mistake, at least in this area. Fast forward 25 years, um, I'm in a job right now which requires me to manage about 50 different things all at the same time. And I have to jump in between them very quickly. I, I really don't even have time to sit still with any one thing. And when Jesus changed my life as a college student, he gave me an interest and a passion for his church. And because of that, I can focus on the work in front of me because I love to see this church thrive and I love to see people's lives change and people grow. I can honestly say I love my job. It suits me, a kid with ADHD. I can't imagine doing anything else. I think the truth is sometimes the parts of our design that we don't understand or we don't appreciate, or maybe we just dislike about ourselves, can be the very things that God intends to use for his purposes. We see this throughout the Bible, God taking broken people and difficult circumstances and redeeming them and using them in unexpected ways. God says, you are my work of art. You are my poem. You are my masterwork. You are not a mistake. In Christ Jesus, you are a masterpiece. And we will spend our lives coming to a greater and greater understanding of the masterwork that God has created in us through Christ Jesus. And in the midst of all this, we look forward to the day when God will change us completely. That's our design. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. But that's not all. God also created us for a purpose. And the next few words in this verse, Ephesians 2.10, tell us exactly what that purpose is. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus 
for good works. This is the second thing we need to understand when we think about this question, why am I here? And it's our purpose. There are just a few words, but the implications I think are really profound. The Apostle Paul just finished explaining how how in Jesus we were moved from death to life, from deserving wrath to receiving mercy. And his big, huge point is you and I didn't do this. We didn't figure it out. It's not because of our works. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Very clearly, it's not by works. But then right away, he starts talking about works again. What's going on? Here's the truth that the Apostle Paul is giving us. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. That's our very purpose in life for those of us who follow Jesus. To live a life with Jesus for the glory of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, doing good works. We are not only saved from something, we are also saved for something. What are those good works? It's a good question, I'm glad you asked. There are several words in the, uh, in the New Testament that are used for good. Two of them are kalos, or agathos and kalos. And I know some people hate when someone starts talking about Greek. I spent years of my life studying this and I never get to use it. So I'm gonna use it for like one minute <laughs> and redeem all of that hard work in the library. So there's, there's two words. The difference really is significant. Um, agathos means something that is profitable, benefiting others or benevolent. It's goodness and works of goodness that are transferred to other people. The other word is kalos which means something that is good, but not necessarily benefiting others. It's good with an emphasis on that, which is beautiful or handsome or excellent or commendable or admirable. So when you look in the mirror, you you say, I look kalos, not agathos. Well, which word do you think is used here? Agathos. We are made for agathos, good works that benefit others. Our lives are actually meant to benefit other people, not just be enjoyed for ourselves. When Adam and Eve were created, they were told that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice God blesses them and then gives them a purpose outside of themselves. Later on, God said to Abram, before he was renamed Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God blesses Abraham and gives him a purpose outside of himself. The same is true for us. We are blessed to bless others. We are made alive in Jesus, rescued 
raised up, saved, all of the words that he mentioned, to live lives that benefit others. In the year 2000, a variation on this idea was popularized by the author Katherine Ryan Hyde in her book and the follow-up movie called Pay It Forward. Does anyone remember Pay It Forward? Uh, this little kid was like in every movie then. Um, he was seeing dead people and all kinds of stuff. But um, the idea of the book and the movie was um, we are obligated to do three good works for others in response to one good work that has been done for us. And these ought to be the kind of good works that people couldn't do for themselves. And so you, you kind of have this chain reaction. You kind of see it spilling out there um, and the world's going to change and kumbaya, everything's going to be great. Um, this was the idea of paying it forward. And it, it's a nice sentiment and it, it grew into somewhat of a movement actually. There's a pay it forward foundation an international pay it forward day. There's really an international day for everything, so that doesn't count for much, but pay it forward bracelets, because you can't have a movement without bracelets. And Starbucks customers now pay it forward by buying the drink they were already gonna buy for the person behind them or something weird. I don't know exactly how that works, um, but everyone feels great about it. Uh, interestingly enough, this idea actually came out well before it, was, it happened well before the book and the movie. In fact, best we can tell, it was coined in 1916 when author Lily Hardy Hammond wrote, you don't pay love back, you pay it forward. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, wow, God has done all these things for you. And so you owe him big time. No, Jesus did all of this as a gift. And along with that gift is a statement of purpose based on God's masterful design to do good for others. We are made to live lives of purpose and our purpose is to do good for others. So why on earth are we here? The apostle Paul says we are created by God, masterfully designed in Christ Jesus for the purpose of living lives of good works that benefit others. It's our design and our purpose. But he doesn't stop there. He says, he adds one more thing, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is our, our confidence. It's a profound mystery that we can't fully understand, but God in his infinite wisdom, not only calls us to do good works, he prepares those good works in advance. And this truth, I think, gives us amazing confidence and purpose and meaning in our daily lives. Every single one of us who follows Jesus, no matter how important people think you are or insignificant, has a purpose to fulfill. Whether you're a CEO or a retiree, whether you're climbing the corporate ladder or you are unemployed, you're a homemaker, a student, a banker, a lawyer, a mechanic, a teacher, yes, even a pastor, is called to be a part of God's purposes 
today. Even in what may seem like mundane circumstances, every day is actually another adventure. We can wake up and live for God's purposes that day. We're told that God has prepared works in advance. The opportunities are coming. The question is, will we walk in them? We don't need to drum them up. We actually are just called to recognize them and to be faithful with what God has put before us. I love um, what, what Peter adds to this idea in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. It says this, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are called to good works, but not only does God prepare those works in advance for us, he actually supplies us with the strength that we need to do them. All of it is a gift. God has specifically designed you and placed you in places of opportunity to do good for others. We don't know what's coming next, but God does. And he promises to provide us with the strength that we need to do what he's placed before us. That's our confidence. So what do we do with all of this? The end of the verse tells us that we should walk in them. We walk in it. We live each day, we live the rest of today in the awareness that we are caught up in God's story, that we are called to do good works, to live a life that benefits others as God directs. Because you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them. This is true of us as individuals. It's actually true of us as a whole community as well. We are called as a church to be a community of good works. And we do this in a hundred different ways here. Um, From the tens of thousands of dollars that are given uh, through benevolence to people who are in need, to the over hundred thousand dollars that's given each year to missions and the efforts to help people know about Jesus. From the ministries of this church, which have operated every week for 31 years, helping people grow in their understanding and following Jesus, to the thousands of hours of local community service that this community does every year, we are called to be a people of good works. In less than a month, actually, we have a special project um, that is is a good work for us to do. On Saturday, February 23rd, we will gather in two-hour shifts with 680 other volunteers to pack 140,000 meals for starving children. We're going to be doing this in partnership with an organization called Feed My Starving Children. And this organization came into existence because there was a follower of Jesus who took this call to do good works seriously. I'd love to tell you that story. Uh, this, the founder of the organization, his name was Richard Proudfit. He was a successful entrepreneur who found himself in Honduras after Hurricane Fifi in 1974. And the, the story goes like this. He went there as, a, as an engineer with a medical relief team, but he was doing kind of the engineering, kind of repair stuff. And uh, he got really busy with his repair work and didn't really see what was going on around him. But... Um, he started to notice the children that were dying because of, of various issues related to the hurricane. 
And, and a mother came up to him carrying her dying child and was pleading for help. And, and he just felt like God said to him, feed my starving children. And the Lord broke his heart and he fell to his knees and he knew that he had to come back and do something about this massive issue. Uh, Richard wasn't looking apparently for a life changing or a world changing mission, but he found one. How does an engineer in the injection mold industry end up caring about starving children? We just read about it in the passage, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. After years of development and working with leading food scientists, they, they came up with a formula that could be eaten and actually ingested by children who were starving. And uh, that's actually kind of a hard problem to fix because a, a starving child's body can't actually take in nutrition like, like one that isn't starving. And they uh, founded Feed My Starving Children in 1987. Since then, they have packed and shipped 2.3 billion, with a B, meals. 333 million in the last year alone. You think Richard ever felt purposeless in his call to feed starving children? I doubt it. In fact, he supported many of the efforts of the organization by selling off components of his company, locations and, and various branches, so that he could put the proceeds into feeding starving children. I read that he has no regrets about using his wealth in this way. He said, how many cars can I drive? How many houses can I live in? God has blessed me so I can bless others. And he continued doing this up into his late 80s when he died. And, and when he was, uh, before he died, he was asked about retirement. When are you going to retire? And uh, he said, how can I retire? And by that, he just meant kind of make life about me and what I want. He said, how can I retire when my kids are dying? He, he ran out of days well before he ran out of purpose, which I think is exactly the opposite of what's happening in our society. We run out of purpose and we have all these days left. There's somebody, there is somebody who gets it. You and I are blessed to bless others. We are saved from spiritual death, made alive with Jesus so we can live a life that blesses others. And that's what we intend to do on this day in February, uh, this day, February 23rd. We as a community will enter into the good work that Jesus has for us to pack and ship meals to starving children. How do I know that God has prepared this beforehand? Um, there's two main reasons that I know that. Uh, number one, it is on the calendar. Number two, it is paid for. So trucks are coming and I will not take, I will not take a, a truckload of rice home with me. Uh, and we hope you can join us for one of those two hour shifts. You can find the details at deercreekchurch.com slash FMSC. And we hope you use this as an opportunity to invite others to join you um, in this effort. Neighbors, friends, coworkers, uh, grab a t-shirt and join us in making a difference. As I, as I close, I just, just want to ask one last question. Why do this? Why live a life of good works that benefit others? Why pack food for starving children? I think the answer is simple. Because you don't pay love back. You pay it forward. 
Jesus did the greatest good work, the greatest act of love at the greatest cost for us. He died a death on the cross to pay for our sins, to give us new life and new purpose. And our right response is to live a life that benefits others. That's why we're here. Would you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, we are reminded in these verses of what you've done for us. You have moved us from spiritual death to spiritual life. You've moved us from a place of deserving wrath to receiving mercy. You have done such a good work on our behalf. May we be a community of good works, not because it will earn anything with you, not because we're trying to earn our salvation or any of the things that you've given us. May we have that right in our minds, but out of that love that you have shown us, may we love others and do that well. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.